So we are going to be looking at Matthew chapter 23, as in we're going to be studying all the way through the entire chapter of Matthew 23 this morning. So um, we're going to jump right in, all right? Uh, we're picking right up from last week, which picked up from the week before. We're moving through this last week of Jesus' life. And Jesus is back in the temple. He's uh, in Jerusalem. It's Wednesday in the middle of the week, and it's been quite a day. The day before, on Tuesday, he's in, he was in the temple, and he threw over the money changers' t- uh, tables in there. And so today, on Wednesday, Jesus returns to the temple. In early in the morning, he's confronted by the Pharisees, and they're like, what the heck? <laughs> like, what authority do you have to do these things? By what power do you have to say these things? And so he has this, um, <clears throat> exchanges words with the religious leaders, and he leaves them speechless with his answers. He's corrected their understanding of God. He's corrected their understanding of Scripture. And he's corrected their understanding of the Messiah, And today we're going to see Jesus lovingly spank them and declare seven woes over them. And so the title of today's sermon is Woe, Guys. And we're going to be looking at a long passage. So um, we're going to jump right in. We're We're going to kind of look at it in chunks. So we'll start just by reading the first seven verses. Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 1. I'm going to be reading and teaching exclusively from the New American Standard Bible today. Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you to do, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds. For they say things, but don't do them. They tie up heavy burdens, and they lay them on on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries. They lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets. They love the chief seats in the synagogues, the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. And they love being called rabbi by by men. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you've given us your word as a lamp to our feet. I pray this morning that your light would shine before us. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us and instruct us and write this word within our heart. You would convict us and cause us, God, to see areas where we need to change and respond to the living word of God. We thank you for Jesus. We focus and center of this gathering. We focus upon the cross of Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, for loving us that much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so the religious leaders... um, These are men who'd given their whole life uh, practicing their religion. They'd given themselves to studying the scriptures, memorizing the scriptures, obeying the 613 laws uh, to a fault. These were the religious leaders in Israel. And they had immense power and immense influence, both in the religious world and in the political world. And Jesus confronts these men in our text today. And be, be frank with you, it's a sobering confrontation. It's just imagine these men had spent their whole life pursuing this very religious lifestyle. Every facet of the law, trying to understand it and apply it. And just think for a second of what that must have been like now. To be publicly confronted and told that you'd missed the whole point of the law. That's what's happening to these uh, religious leaders in our text today. And in speaking these seven woes to the Pharisees, Jesus, I believe, is also wanting to warn us today. Jesus cautions us, I believe, not to miss the point, 
Not to miss the point about life with God. That's the whole point of the seven woes to the Pharisees. I believe that that is a word for us as well today. To be careful not to emphasize the wrong things and miss the big picture about God and about life with God. And so we remember that Jesus, he's nearing the end of his ministry. He's uh, had many discourses with the religious leaders. Um, He's given them many opportunities uh, to see the truth to respond to the truth. The religious leaders have been unwilling uh, to to respond to the truth. And so now Jesus is going to lovingly humiliate them by telling them the truth about their hearts in front of a crowd in the temple in Jerusalem. This is a radical moment for these religious leaders. Jesus actually kind of starts off very kind, affirming them in what they do. If we look at verse 2, it says, Jesus is speaking, saying, The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all they tell you, do and observe. See, Jesus is affirming their role and their place. He's saying these are learned men that sit and function in this right place of authority. Jesus is saying they sit in the seat of Moses. That just means that they carry on the work of Moses. You know, Moses brought the law down from Mount Sinai. And then Moses spent the rest of his life bringing the law into the people and helping the people live under the law as they approach life with God, understanding the law. And Jesus is saying in his time and in his day, these are the men that do that for you. Listen to them. They've studied the law. What they say, do. They're to help you. And so Jesus has just shut these guys down with the scriptures. The last few weeks we've been looking at uh, previous passages, but now he's setting their role and their work within the proper context for Israel. While they're not always right, they do occupy an important office in Jewish religious life. And so Jesus affirms them publicly. But this little, you know, words of affirmation, this love fest here, it doesn't last very long because in verse 3 it switches, okay? Jesus says, do what they say, but it says, don't do what they do. It's like, wow, he's calling them straight out. Jesus goes right in, and he points out their hypocrisy, their teaching versus their actions. Uh, In our modern vernacular, we would call that not practicing what you preach. That's Jesus' line from 2,000 years ago. It's exactly what he's telling these religious leaders. He's like, what they teach you is good. Do what they teach you. Don't do what they do, though, is is essentially what he's saying. He explains this in verse 4. He says, They tie up heavy burdens, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move with so much as a finger. Now, the heavy, cumbersome load that Jesus is talking about, um, this is the religious leader's interpretation of how to obey God's law. God had given 613 laws, and over, through the generations, over time, the religious leaders had kind of added to that law, added ways that that law should be applied to humanity. They'd made God's law super complicated and horribly arduous. And in essence, and using Jesus's vocabulary, they kind of piled these complicated rules onto the backs of the people. But here's the horrible part. The horrible part isn't that they're trying to get people to obey the law. The horrible part is that they did that while they themselves created loopholes or workarounds. They weren't living in the way that they were teaching other people to live. Now compare this accusation that Jesus is making, right? Saying that they're they're telling you to live in this crazy way while they themselves don't live. Compare that to what Jesus uh, talks about in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus addresses this idea of religious workload. He says, come to me, all who are weary and all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle, humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. See, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, was starting to preach the gospel there. Jesus teaches God's provision for a Savior uh, of humanity is by grace. The Pharisees were teaching that man's self-provision for salvation happened through works of righteousness. And so consider the heavy burden and the yoke that the Pharisees of the day were putting on the people versus the beautiful invitation of Jesus to be free from the demands, or rather free from the condemnation of the law. Jesus continues to highlight their hypocrisy in the next verse. He says, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. They brought in their phylacteries, they lengthened their tassels of their garments, they love the place of honor at banquets and chief seats in the synagogues. They love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. Now, that, there's one word in there you may not get, the word phylacteries. Phylacteries is just a, a small little leather box that would have had prayers from the Old Testament in it. And the practice, it dates back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, where God commands Israel to have the law of the Lord set before them. It says, bind it on your hand and allow it to be bound to your, your mind. Now, in our modern understanding of that passage under the New Covenant, we say that as figurative language. Like, oh, you should be thinking about God's law. You should be, like, memorizing the Word of God and being in the Word so it directs your actions of your hands and directs the thoughts of your mind. Well, the Jews then took that literally as they do today. If you go to Israel, you will see men with phylacteries on their heads, leather strapped around their head, leather strapped around their arm with phylactery boxes on their right hand, just as they did 2,000 years ago. So this is a, a, a literal application of something that God had given them about the Word of God and the presence of God being present in their daily life. And Jesus' beef with them wasn't that they wore phylacteries. It was that they did everything to be seen by people. They did everything to be seen as holy and, and set apart. And so what he's, the complaint that Jesus has about them was that their phylacteries were wide. Right? It's like Texas theology. If a small phylactery is good, a ginormous phylactery must be that much better. Right? Like the, the Jewish men wore tassels. If a small tassel is good, having a huge tassel would really set you apart. Now, Jesus already pointed out their motives for this. Uh, they did these things to be noticed by other people. The, however, these were visual things that God had given his people so that they would remember God and they would remember God's word. Now, in our, uh, under the New Covenant, we have something similar to this. Uh, we have the communion elements. It's a physical reminder of the Word of God and the presence of God in our life, in our religious life before God. In the same way, the phylacteries and the tassels reminded them of God's presence and God's Word in their daily life. But the religious leaders had perverted these things. They turned what was supposed to be a reminder of God and what was supposed to be a reminder of God's holiness in people's daily lives. They turned it into a spotlight which shone upon themselves, which shone upon their own personal holiness. Now, Jesus continues saying that they love the places of honor. They love the best seats in the synagogue. They like titles in public. They just love public admiration. I think many of us struggle with the same things. But the great sin was that they were using these practices and these devices that were given by God to glorify God, they were using them in a way that gave attention to themselves and their own holiness. They presented themselves in a holy manner for their own glory rather than the glory of God. They used God's tools intended to point people to God 
as tools that pointed people to them. And I believe this is a temptation for all religious people. Uh, Jesus has already actually cautioned his followers about this way back in Matthew chapter 6 on the Sermon on the Mount. If you'll remember, uh, verse 1, chapter 6, it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. See, we're to consider our motivations when we do good things. Am I doing this for God's glory or am I doing this for my glory? That's what Jesus is getting at there. Jesus expects his followers and he expects us to bring glory to God and not just glory to ourselves. Now, in Matthew 5, we see Jesus say something that sounds a little bit different. He says this, Matthew 5, verse 16. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. So Jesus, it, it apparently on a surface reading, it sounds like he's saying both. He's saying both, beware of practicing your righteousness before men, and he's saying, let your good works be seen by others. But see, the difference between those two passages is what's your motivation? Jesus is getting at the, the heart issue here. The point in both of these passages is who gets the glory. So Jesus continues in verse 8. He says, but you... But you, he's not addressing the religious leaders. He's kind of turning to the crowd. He's just made an accusation to the religious leaders. Now he's addressing the whole crowd that's there. And he says, but you, they observe for self-glory. But you're going to obey for the right reasons. Look at verse 8. He says, do not be called rabbi. One is your teacher. And you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father. For one is your father, he who's in heaven. Do not be called leaders. For one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. See, Jesus doesn't want his followers to be like the religious leaders, especially in this way. The Pharisees love titles. They loved to be shown and addressed as more important than other people. They loved the stage and the place of public prominence. And Jesus is saying, let God be the one who gets honor and glory in all that you do. Don't create little titles for yourself. Jesus exposes a pattern and a tendency for self-glory, and he calls it out. See, we're to avoid unnecessary titles that don't glorify God and that don't edify others. And he tells his followers to refuse titles and just serve one another as brothers and sisters. He's he's putting down the self-glorifying titles, and he's raising up this idea, this very gospel idea of mutual submission, right, that the Apostle Paul writes a lot about. And he's saying that the title of teacher and father and leader and honor, all of those things are meant to be all that honor, all that glory, all of, all of like the little things that we can get from having titles, that is all intended for Jesus and Jesus alone. So as we endeavor to make disciples, we don't ask people to call us dad or daddy or father or pops or, or the man or whatever. Like we, we, we shun those titles. We give all glory to Jesus. The people that we're discipling aren't becoming disciples of us or followers of us. They're becoming disciples of Jesus, right? And so all of, the, all of the glory and the recognition goes to Jesus. We don't exalt ourselves. We don't exalt others with titles. Verse 12, Jesus kind of throws this in at the end of that, that passage. He says, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. How's that promise, right? When I read that, when I read that, this is what I hear. Humble yourself or God's going to do it for you, right? <laughs> that's, a, that's a radical promise. 
There's not going to be any competition for God's glory. Jesus is making that clear. God will raise up the meek and the contrite, and God will humble the proud and the self-exalting. Now Jesus here, standing in front of these religious leaders, after having said that, he's about to make good on that promise. They had not humbled themselves before God. And so Jesus is going to lovingly but directly humble them in the temple in front of these crowds. And he publicly pronounces these woes over the religious leaders. And what Jesus is about to do is both very serious and it's very sad. And we need to be careful as we look at this, okay? Because he's, he's fully just laying this out on their shoulders. This is heavy stuff. But we have to be careful to examine ourselves as we look at these woes. Uh, it'd be wrong for us to just notice how the Pharisees got it wrong and then move on, right? It'd also be wrong for us today as we hear these things like, oh, the, like this, don't be a hypocrite or you're such a hypocrite in this way. It'd be wrong for us to be like, oh, dang it, man, I wish so-and-so was here. They really need to hear this message. See, this, I believe that God intends this word for us, each and every one of us today. We need to allow the word of God to work in our hearts because the truth is, we have some of the same tendencies as the Pharisees did. So we're going to jump into the woes here, but uh, before we do, I want to give a quick definition of the word woe. Uh, Webster's defines it like this, and I like this definition in this context for this passage because it really does uh, define what Jesus is doing here in terms of giving these woes. Uh, woe is defined as a warning that there will be trouble if someone persists on their course. So these woes are God's warning over the course that these religious men had set for their lives. God's pointing out the destructive nature of their life choices. It's a loving warning to these guys to change course. And the reoccurring theme in Jesus' warnings uh, to the Pharisee is hypocrisy. You'll see this over and over again. Probably, I, don't, I didn't count, but maybe 10, 12 times. He's going to call them hypocrites. Talk about their hypocrisy. And it, that word meant the same thing then as it means now. But there was kind of also a, a robust meaning that maybe we don't get right off the top. But their actors back in those days, people that performed on stage, uh, were, were called hypocrites. And the idea is they played a role. They, they, they acted out something that wasn't real in their own life. And there's that kind of secondary meaning to the word hypocrite that probably with the ancient understanding of that word, Jesus might have been intending as well. And so it's a powerful accusation. And what Jesus is saying is that their religion is insincere, that they're simply acting it out. And so you can say that the seven woes are a sad study in, in, in missing the point. And we're going to take a look at them now. Woes one and two are thematically tied together, so we're going to look at them together. And woes one and two are warnings from Jesus about moving in the wrong direction. These, the religious leaders were headed in the wrong direction, and Jesus offers them a warning. Um, I feel like there's a lot of caveats. Another caveat here. This is important for us to look at. Verse 14 in this chapter is not found in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew. This is a rare example of a disputed New Testament text. And we just can't be sure that it belongs in the book of Matthew. It is found in Mark chapter 12 and in Luke chapter 20 in parallel accounts of this same story. So it probably does belong in the story. But since it can't be found in the oldest manuscripts in the Gospel of Matthew, most translations don't include it. They just skip over and Most people don't even recognize. But verse 14 may not even be in your Bible. It is in my Bible. I read the New American Standard Bible, which puts hard brackets around it, which means it's not in the uh, oldest manuscripts. But today I'm, gonna, I'm not going to include verse 14 because I can't be sure it belongs in the book of Matthew. So we're going to look at verses 13 and 15. 
Cool? If you have questions, email me. Okay, Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. You don't enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who, who are entering in to go in. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and on land to make one proselyte, and then when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Wow, heavy stuff. The accusation is they're shutting off the kingdom of heaven here. And what Jesus means by that is uh, he's saying you're rejecting the Messiah, you're shutting the kingdom of heaven off to the people that follow you. Jesus is saying that he is the Messiah. He's bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, and the Pharisees are shutting the door on it. As Jesus has been teaching throughout his ministry, being the way, the truth, and the life, the, the Pharisees are shutting the door on the way to God, on the truth about who God is, on the life that's being offered through the Messiah. The one thing the religious leaders were supposed to be all about and be fastidious in their study and observations in life was the Messiah. They were, that was kind of the whole point of, of the law, the whole point of knowing the scriptures. And here they are standing before the Messiah and they're shutting the door in his face. It's the accusation Jesus is making. He gives them credit, perhaps, for making a, a, one convert, but then he blasts them over their discipleship. He says, you lead them to truth, but then you fill them with lies about fall works, as if anyone can earn their own salvation. See, they would have people rely on their own righteousness under the law rather than rely on what God has done for them in bringing the Messiah. They're trying to reject the Messiah, saying, no, it's, it's not unmerited favor. It's not the love of God in, in the form of a sacrificial uh, love offering. It's your works. See, the religious leaders didn't get it. To them, holiness was a prerequisite to receive God's grace rather than holiness being a product of God's grace. Let me repeat that. Their error here was that they saw holiness as a prerequisite to receive God's grace. Like they had to be good in order to receive the grace of God rather than holiness being a product of God's grace. So they thought that God loves good people rather than that God's love makes people good. See, they, they were getting it backwards. I, I, I feel like some of us can fall into that. I, I can fall into that as well. And then Jesus makes this crazy statement. He says, they're twice as much a son of hell. What does that mean? Well, the law, the, the law of the Old Testament was only given to show how bad we are. The law was never intended to show us that we're good. The law shows our deep and desperate need for a savior. So anyone trying to earn their own righteousness under the law will only ever earn hell. And Jesus is saying, you're leading the people you convert to hell. By, by ignoring and shutting the door on the Messiah. Heavy stuff. Okay, woe number three. This next woe is for having wrong affections. Jesus warns these leaders that they have wrong affections. Verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important? The gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that, sacrifice, that, that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. 
And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Now, this might seem strange to us, all this talk about giving an oath or swearing by uh, something, but this was a very common and very significant practice. Um, and, and it was used when you were adamant and trying to convince someone that you're telling the truth. And the idea is that someone would swear by something very valuable. I swear by the gold in the temple, right, would be kind of how they were taught to make these oaths. And Jesus says that the Pharisees taught people to swear by the gold in the temple. They taught them to swear by the sacrifices on the altar. Now, the gold in the temple and the sacrifices in the altar, they, they were valuable to people. But they weren't, ultimately weren't very valuable because when you die, you don't take any of that stuff with you, right? That stuff is perishable. Jesus points out that it only has real value because of the context in which it's set. That gold is really only that valuable because it's in the temple. The sacrifice is only that valuable because it's on the altar. The altar is infinitely more valuable. And Jesus is saying, you fools, you're missing the whole point about the true value of the temple. The altar is a sacred place created by God for people to experience forgiveness and nearness to God. Now here's the main point. These religious leaders were teaching the people of Israel to emphasize the wrong things about God. They were emphasizing the wrong things. They thought and they valued human effort over God's provision. They focused on human efforts rather than focusing on what God had provided for them. Now we can easily fall into similar patterns of placing too much value on our own efforts above God's provision. I think that's something, especially in our culture, that, that we come by pretty easily. We can easily make it all about what we do for God, for example. We can get hung up on the clothes we wear to church. We can overemphasize uh, how we give or what we give or to whom we're giving, right? We can overemphasize the different ways we worship and, you know, it causes all kinds of separation within the church. Rather than making the church and rather than making our Christianity or our Christian experience all about Jesus. See, Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the altar that God has provided for us. So this is what I believe God has for us in this context, not just for the Pharisees. Woe to us when we make our Christianity about our needs or when we make it about our recognition. Woe to us when we worry about our reputation. Woe, woe to us when we worry about our needs being met or when we make much of our experience and our comfort, right? We worry about our seats in the sanctuary. We worry about our parking spots. We worry about our temperature preferences when we all get together, right? Now, I'm good at creating that list because I'm really good about making everything in the world around me about myself. And Jesus is correcting them on that. He said, you're emphasizing the wrong things. You're thinking about the wrong things as you approach God. Our Christian experience should be all about Jesus. Jesus himself is the altar that God has provided. Christ himself is the temple in, in, in the New Covenant language. Christ himself is the only way to God. Our self-efforts don't get us to God. Only Jesus provides that access. So when we approach and think about Christianity in the church, it should be all about Jesus, not all about what we do for Jesus, not all about how smart we are, how gifted we are, or how generous we are. It's all about Jesus. The Apostle Paul um, came to this realization in a, in a very real way in his own life. Very religious guy, probably the best at his religion, educated, disciplined, all of that. Uh, he was all about performing in order to please God. But there's one day where he experienced the presence of God, right? Uh, out on the road, Jesus came to him, blinded him. 
And it just changed him. It changed his priorities. It changed how he valued things for the rest of his life. And um, let's check out Philippians chapter 3. You'll hear this. This is a powerful testimony of that change. Paul says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as a loss for the sake of knowing Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. And I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. See, he's, he's recognized not just the value of righteousness, but the source of righteousness. Isn't that powerful? Through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may know him and know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. See, Paul reminds us that the gospel is not about what we can do in order to earn favor before God or appear good before God and other people. That is not what the gospel is about. But rather that God has died in our place and rose from the dead so that we might have new life. This is vital because we often make our Christian lives about what we do or what we can do rather than making it about what God does and what God can do. And it's a sensitive, easy, easy to miss point. But when we make it all about what we can do, we make it all about like, oh, look at how good we are. Look at the amazing things that are happening because of our giftedness. Our focus gets off of Jesus and it gets on to humans. And then at that point, who are we worshiping? Who are we taking our marching orders from? Our efforts and our deeds are only ever good because they sit on the altar of Jesus. Christianity does not emphasize the value of our works in terms of making us right with God. Christianity celebrates Jesus and his perfect work. Christianity is all about Jesus. And the religious leaders were emphasizing the wrong things and Jesus warns them about it. Okay, woe number four is for forming the wrong conclusions. Jesus warns them. Hey, you're forming the wrong conclusions. Verse 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. That's crazy language right there. But he's telling them, that they give, they give very close attention to the small details of law. They're very concerned about keeping the letter of the law, but what was happening is they weren't giving enough attention to the spirit of the law. They were missing the main point of the law by focusing exclusively on minute details within the law. And we just saw Jesus just a couple weeks ago teaching them that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and uh, to love your neighbor as yourself. In that order, that, those are the priorities of the laws. See, when we do that, when we follow Jesus' priorities, well, then we're concerned with the big picture application of the law, the things that these religious leaders were missing, such as justice and mercy and generosity. See, these religious leaders had come to the wrong conclusion. They thought if they focused on the little details, they'd come out okay with the big picture things. And Jesus points out that God expects both. We're to emphasize the big truths and the details, right? But our priorities have to be straight. That's why Jesus is reprioritizing the law for them. And I think that they probably found, just like in my life, I know it's I find that it's easier to nail the small ways of being obedient, right? Like, oh, I got a tithe Cuban. Oh, that's no problem, <laughs> right? 
here's my cumin. That's way easier for me than loving unlovable people, right? Complicated people. And if I can construct some kind of a religious uh, world in my own head and in my own heart, where if I just tithe cumin, I don't have to hang out with that super obnoxious person, right? And that, see where that, where that theology takes you. It takes you far from God's heart and God's purposes for the law. They had formed wrong conclusions. They had missed the point. I believe we often miss it as well. Woes number five and six are tied together. Um, and these two are warnings Jesus gives for having the wrong emphasis. These leaders were emphasizing the wrong things. Let's look at verse 25. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside it's full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, so that the outside of it may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now that is tough news to deliver. Those are some humiliating words, some truthful but hard, hard words. Jesus is telling them that they've emphasized all of the wrong things, that they put their focus on external observance, but they've ignored the internal reality. They've ignored the true condition of their heart. And so they're obedient in some ways, but they're missing the whole point of the law. The whole point of their law, by, by leaving a dead, rotten corpse, uh, is the picture you're given, in their heart. Allow me to present a correct emphasis and perspective in this area. The psalmist presents this prayer in uh, Psalm 119, verse 80. He says, May my heart be blameless in your statutes, so that I will not be ashamed. Notice that he prays his heart would be blameless in the Lord's statutes. Not simply his actions, right? Not his appearance or his perfect obedience to the law. Not his outward image. Pay attention to the emphasis of this passage because he's praying his heart would be in it. That, that he would be engaged from the inside out, right? That's a good prayer. Let's allow that prayer to disarm our tendencies to let our feelings dictate our obedience. Because sometimes I don't obey because my heart's not in it, right? And if our heart isn't in it, then we're excused from having to do it. Like we, we somehow, it's like, well, i got to wait until my feelings are aligned with what I know to be the right thing before I obey. Well, if I'm waiting for my feelings to catch up with what I know the right thing to do is, in my case, if you're anything like me, you're going to be waiting a long time to do the right thing because my feelings don't often move in that direction. See, David is praying for his heart to move, to be in line with God's word. So if my heart is in dissonance with the word of God, guess which one needs to move, right? I, I have to expect that God's going to move my heart. Because apart from God's leading, our hearts are only and always wrong. I know mine is. I can't trust my emotions or my feelings. This is why, all the way back in the Old Testament, our hearts and the condition of our hearts have always been a central theme of the new covenant. Look at Jeremiah chapter 21. It says in verse 33, This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We, we see the heart addressed in Ezekiel uh, in a similar way. In Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 25, he says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from your idols. 
Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now, what that means is it's going to give us a, a heart of flesh, a soft, supple heart that's responsive to, that's tender to the things of God. And then he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. Giving us a new spirit, giving us a new heart. See, that's the hope we have in Christ. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to the crowds on this day in the temple. He's reminding them of this new covenant. Here stands the Messiah and he's saying, there's a new way to approach God. The night before Jesus died, which is just one day after this happened, Jesus held a cup in the air and he declared that it represented his blood that was going to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. And he declared that his blood is the mark of a new covenant. Christ is the one who made the new covenant with us for the forgiveness of sins. And we know that anyone who's in Christ, he's a new creation, that we're made brand new in Christ. We get new hearts, we get new desires, we get God's spirit in us. See, in this lifetime, however, there's still going to be that tension. There's still going to be that struggle with obedience. There's a very real battle being waged in the spiritual realm. Again, we turn to the Psalms. uh, for for How do we address that? We don't want to just change our behavior. We want to have hearts that are soft to the Lord. Look at Psalm 139. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there's any hurtful way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Man, each, each of us, I believe, needs to be praying that today. Search my heart. And that's what we do here on Sundays after we uh, preach the word of God. And, and, and res- we offer a response to the word. A time where we can uh, present our hearts to God for examination. We need to just slow down and allow God to search us and assess us. Woe number seven, the final woe. Jesus warns them of wrong self-assessment. They've assessed themselves wrongly. Uh, Verse 29. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have partnered with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? This is another gnarly uh, thing that Jesus is saying. He, but he's telling them that their assessment of themselves is better than their assessments of other people. They esteem themselves to be better than other people. That's what they honestly believed about themselves, and that's what they honestly taught other people. They taught, they they would brag about how they wouldn't have killed the prophets of old had they been around, right? That's that's the context here. And Jesus exposes this, and he exposes that their heart, in their heart, there's a plot to kill him. We'll see that in just a second. At the same time as they're saying, we wouldn't have killed the prophets of old, at the same time, there's, Jesus knows in their heart there was a plot that day in the temple to kill him. And he's not just an Old Testament prophet, he's the Messiah, So just consider the condition of their heart, which Jesus is able to do. I believe that we always assess ourselves wrongly in view of others. The Pharisees aren't alone in this. We either assess ourselves to be better than other people, or we assess ourselves as worse than other people. Our culture is built on on this idea of comparison. Our cultural default is to self-assess 
and assess others. And this plays out in our Christianity if we're not very, very careful. Here's an example. In order to build ourselves up, we might compare ourselves to someone else so we can feel better about ourselves. Or perhaps we start comparing ourselves to someone else and we see what they're doing is so much better. They don't seem to have marital problems. Gosh, his wife is smiling. He's better than I am, right? And we put ourselves below other people. See, only the gospel frees us from this kind of comparative addiction that we have, that, that our culture uh, has, has, has taught us. Because when we come to Jesus, we become beloved sons and daughters of God. That flies in the face of our own self-assessment, and that flies in the face of our assessments of others. That is our true identity. So we're saved from developing false identities based on what we do better or what we do worse than other people. It's important for us to remember that we are only bad and always bad on our own. That's what the law of God shows us. The law of God shows us we're only and always bad on our own. But Jesus showed us through this new covenant that we are only loved and always and forever loved by God. It's the old covenant, new covenant. In Christ, our identity is secure and we're free from false assessments. Recall Psalm 139, 23. Search me, God. This is a good prayer for us in those areas of our heart that are so tied to how we feel we're doing in comparison with other people. When you open a fashion magazine, you start comparing yourself to what those lifestyles must be like. When you go online or you look at billboards as you drive into L.A., you know, and you start, that self-comparison starts kicking in. Let this be our prayer. Try me, Lord. Know my anxious thoughts. God, let this be the prayer in the church and our culture. Just think for a second of the freedom we would experience in our life if we were presenting our hearts and our anxious thoughts to the Lord in those moments, right? Just think of the freedom we'd experience in our family. Think of the freedom our teenagers would experience if they weren't brought up in this culture of like, hey, you need to be good at that sport, otherwise you're not going to have any friends. Or you need to start wearing this one certain clothes or you can't hang out with the surfers or the skaters or the whatevers, right? It's like this, this, this construct that we're raised in. Think of the freedom that we'd experience in our own personal finances if we weren't buying stuff to feel better about ourselves. If we weren't buying stuff so we could continue to identify with our peers in that way. See, there's freedom only if we would accept and walk in our identity in Christ before God. Only Jesus can break those deep identity issues we have. And these religious leaders were stuck in their wrong self-assessments. And Jesus says he's going to prove it. This is gnarly. Jesus is able to do this. In verse 34, he continues. He says, therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. He's like, oh, you wouldn't kill the prophets of old? Here, I'm going to send you some, I'm going to send you some more. He says, some of them you'll kill and crucify some. You're going to scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Now, we see this happen, if you've ever read the book of Acts, that everywhere the church spreads, jailings and persecutions and uh, murders even are occurring. You see Stephen even murdered right off in the book of Acts. And Jesus is saying, you've always operated this way. In your rebellion against God, in your attempt to self-identify by comparing with other people, you have murder in your heart. You have murder against the very truth about who God is. Jesus is now about to pronounce judgment on them. We're going to move on here. Um, they're not seeing the error in their way. They're not getting it. They're not owning these things that Jesus is bringing up. And so he pronounces judgment on them, starting in verse 35. He says, So upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood on earth, 
from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That is a heavy line right there. Now, to understand this, you have to understand the Hebrew Bible is organized a little differently than our Bible. The Hebrew Bible starts just like ours with the book of Genesis, but our Old Testament goes to Malachi. Theirs was arranged differently, and it went through Second Chronicles. And so what Jesus uh, is saying is that you're guilty of this, this whole deal. From the very beginning, which is uh, the murder of Abel there in Genesis, all the way to the murder of Zechariah, which took place in, uh, in Second Chronicles. He's like, you're guilty of missing the point all the way through. He's affirming the relevance of the whole Old Testament, but he's also saying you're guilty of the whole thing. It's a heavy statement. Jesus puts the whole weight of the law on these guys. But this is what we have to understand, is apart from the new covenant, apart from Jesus, we stand in the same place as the Pharisees. Their biggest sin was rejecting the Messiah. And today, not seeing Jesus rightly, not responding to Jesus rightly, puts us in the same place as these religious leaders. They stood face to face with Jesus. They were culpable for the full revelation of God. And so Jesus pronounces judgment over them. And then at the very end of our passage, he laments over them, over their obstinance. He wishes they would have responded. And he says these words. They're out of love. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you're unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that that last little phrase there is a reference to the second coming of Jesus. But here's Jesus on earth, standing before these guys, seeking to save that which is lost. They refuse. They're unwilling to turn and repent. This is sad, sad stuff for the Pharisees. So what we need to do now, we're going to end right here. We need to leave the Pharisees. They, They were bad spot, okay? And we need to transition into our response. Let's think about ourselves and our tendencies towards these very same thing. What is our response to these words of Jesus? And there's two ways as we worship now that I would propose we should consider responding. The first is asking, asking God, how is Jesus wanting to gather you under his wings of love? Just like Jesus lamenting, saying, hey, I've wanted you to gather you under my wings. How is Jesus wanting to gather you under his wings? But where are you unwilling? What are those places uh, where you have false identities or coming to false conclusions? The second thing is, are you able to see places in your life today where your house is being left desolate? Just like Jesus said, because you've rejected me and you've not, you've not come fully in under my wing. He said, I'm going to leave you with your house desolate. What are some places in our houses that are being left desolate because of areas that we refuse to come under the authority of Jesus? And the idea here is that sin doesn't doesn't happen in a vacuum. We we affect the people around us, your your husband, your wife, your kids. And often our rebellion against Jesus' authority leaves places of desolation in our home or in our life. And so as we, as we worship, as the lights go down, just, just ask God to show you places of desolation in your life. What are some areas of my life Jesus is trying to gather under his wing, but I've been resisting? See, Jesus has done everything possible to, to remove whatever barrier there is to keeping you from gathering under his wing. And some of you need to hear today that Jesus loves broken people 
Jesus loves rebellious people. And in your rebellion, don't run from Jesus today. Run to Jesus today. Repent before him. Let Jesus begin to heal you, or maybe your marriage, or maybe your family. As we worship, let's keep these words before us. Psalm 139, search me, God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Father God, we thank you for your word. It's true and it's authoritative. God, and we want to be changed by it this morning. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, to search our hearts. Show us areas of rebellion. Show us places that we're kind of holding outside of the covering of Jesus. And we pray, God, that you'd show us places that are being left desolate, And God, give us a heart, give us the faith to surrender those things to you. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.